If you really want to be interdisciplinary, you want to be a neuroscientist, you want to be a philosopher, you have to do those things. Uh, you can't uh, just read about them. There is a practical or a practice or a praxis-oriented kind of aspect. What happens is scientists prematurely automatize the important ideas and devote all their thinking to lower-level level methodological problems. So they stop thinking. The single neuron approach to understand cognition was really spinning its wheels for the past decade and a half or more. Uh, there was marginal, seemingly marginal progress on certain issues, but not on these core complicated aspects of cognition. Based on a bet that David and I had, what kind of neuroscience is going to give us the best insights, intuitions, concepts to think about that difference between the cognitive system and the sensory motor system? And the argument is... This is Brain Inspired. Welcome, everyone. It's Paul. So today I have on David Barak from Columbia University and John Krakauer uh, at Johns Hopkins. Of course, John's been on the show uh, many times now, but uh, this is David's first time on the podcast. So David is both a philosopher and uh, a neuroscientist, and that is one of the things that we discuss uh, in the beginning, his experiences working on both sides there, the philosophy side and the neuroscience side. But the main reason they're on is because of a recent paper they collaborated on called Two Views on the Cognitive Brain. Um, in this paper, they champion the recent population-based dynamical systems approach to studying brains that I've discussed with many others uh, on previous episodes. And David and John argue that this kind of approach gives reason to be optimistic about making real progress understanding how brain activity underlies higher cognitive functions that have historically uh, resisted explanation. So we talk about some of the issues that they discuss more deeply in, in the paper. As always, I want to express my gratitude to my Patreon supporters. I'm really grateful that you took the time and made the effort to sign up and uh, essentially donate a couple dollars a month to the podcast. Thank you. Show notes for this episode are at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 113, 113. Enjoy. David, John, thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Pleased to be here. Thank you again, Paul. I, I feel like we're almost a couple. <laughs> I know this is a record number for you. I think, I believe you are the highest, uh, most frequent visitor, John. Uh, congratulations, or I'm sorry, one of those I'm, two. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm deeply honored. I'm deeply honored. <laughs> but David, you're a first time, uh, first time guest here. So um, let's focus on you for just a couple minutes. Uh, I kind of want to know um, about, you know, well, you know, your background, but also how you're managing the philosophy slash neuroscience um, world and the social aspect of that. Like, do all your neuroscience friends hate you? Do all your philosopher friends hate you? <laughs> or does everyone love you? <laughs> uh, well, love is a strong uh, term here, but um, I think there is some cross-disciplinary respect. And I think importantly, that respect has been um, increasing or, or as the dialogue uh, channels of communication are opening up and being founded, uh, coming on a show like this, of course, helps uh, encourage those channels of communication as well. So my background um, 
uh, was I went to the Claremont Colleges actually outside Los Angeles and I had an advisor. I was very into philosophy when I arrived in college and I had an advisor, Brian Keeley, a philosopher uh, who has done a, a little bit of bench work as well in neuroscience, uh, who was just a fabulous mentor and turned me on to the intersection right, right almost from day one when mm. I was in college, uh, intersection of neuroscience and philosophy. And at Pitzer College, where I went to school, you were able to design your own major, and I designed my own major. I called it Consciousness Studies, um, but it was really philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience. Um, mm. And I was tutored, uh, mentored by Brian, as well as a psychologist who uh, has passed, uh, sadly, about 10 years ago now, uh, William Banks at Pomona, who was a very close advisor of mine as well, who was very interested in consciousness. And so my uh, undergraduate studies really were already at the intersection of these disciplines, albeit focused on experience, the qualitative nature of consciousness, uh, and, and, and related aspects of, of subjectivity and so forth of the mind. When I graduated from college, I had um, the, I think, not too uncommon experience of what the hell do I do now, especially with a degree in consciousness science or consciousness studies. And I decided to get a more rigorous training in analytic philosophy. Um, and I, I did mm. that. I got a master's degree in philosophy from Milwaukee, um, but then realized that I still loved some of the empirical aspects of the study of mind. And, and by then I had decided to move away from consciousness, which I still find to be uh, it, very interesting and, and completely confounding of basically every theory I've never made seen. A, a rational decision, a rational yeah, vocation right, decision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially given my own, uh, intellectual limitations and, and time and so forth. And so I decided to pursue a fundamental questions, uh, in cognition and in cognitive neuroscience. Uh, and as well, I, uh, matriculated at Duke University where, uh, there were only about at the time and there still aren't very many inter interdisciplinary programs at the graduate level that combine mm. uh, philosophy and the neurosciences. And Duke University had, a, um, has this Wonderful uh, uh, institutional mechanism for fostering interdisciplinary endeavor at the graduate level. They're called graduate admitting programs. And I was in the uh, cognitive neuroscience graduate admitting program. And I was able to uh, matriculate within Duke to the philosophy department my second year for my actual PhD. Uh, but I worked in neurobiology and cognitive neuroscience uh, the entire time I was studying for my PhD. So I would, you know, that gives you a little capsule of sort of my background, yeah. and it has always been inter interdisciplinary, although the focus of my research has changed over time. I still, as we're on here today to discuss, uh, have a focus on the conceptual and theoretical foundations of cognitive neuroscience, um, but mm -hmm. uh, my empirical work and, and a lot of my conceptual work these days actually has to do with reasoning. Uh, what is reasoning? Uh, how does reasoning connect to the selective pressures on organisms? And, and in particular, how does foraging bear on reasoning uh, mm. up to and including formal mathematical reasoning? So I have some papers in progress um, and, and sort of in the submit long drawn out submission process that is philosophy applying principles of foraging to formal mathematical reasoning. Um, and then I also investigate the neural circuits of, of reasoning uh, uh, from a foraging perspective. So, Sort of that sort of gives you a flavor for the way that I weave together these diverse disciplines. What are you? Are you a philosopher? Are you a neuroscientist? When when what do you tell Ant 
Clotilde. I don't know who Aunt Clotilde is. Oh, man. Um, I am a philosopher and a neuroscientist, so I, I work in, in both disciplines. I publish in both, both disciplines yeah. as best I can to the highest standards of each field. Um, it is extremely challenging. Uh, if I'm forced to choose, uh, I, 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 I don't know. I, I'm sometimes not, I'm depends not on the context. You. Yeah, I yeah. don't think that's a useful uh, distinction to make in 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 these sorts of terms because they really feed off of each other as you know as the the, the paper we're going to talk about attests to. John, do you have what you have been really? Um, I, I don't want to say recently diving into it because you've always been into philosophy, but do you have the perfect the optimal trajectory for you know circling back? Someone like me, right? Who I guess is prime. I don't know. Now that I'm not in neuroscience. In experimental neuroscience, now I'm just doing philosophy. It seems all the time, but you know, what, the, the most useful sort of cyclic and duration within the, the cycles of experimental versus philosophy, etc. Yeah, I mean, there are so many things to say here. Um, <clears throat> one, I think, is you know, philosophers can be become quite defensive if you're if if they're seen mainly as a kind of like a statistics department at a university, a way to clean up people's thinking in whatever discipline they do, right? That it's a kind right. of mental hygiene so that people get a little bit of a sense of what they are getting confused over and help them realize the contradictions in their own thoughts. So a kind of consult, a thinking consult, right? But of course, philosophers don't want to consider themselves just that. They have their own interests, just like statisticians have their own formal interests. They're not there just to do a power analysis for Right. So in other words, there's a little bit of that when it comes to philosophy, especially when it's applied uh, to science. Um, but on that, on that, you know, and then as we, you and I have talked a lot before, you know, Hasok Chang has talked about this idea that the philosophy of science is sort of complementary science. It's thinking about the things that scientists in their daily activities gloss over. Right. It's just filling in the gaps. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and another way that I would put it is, you know, I would just did a podcast recently on skill learning. And, you know, I made the point that athletes automatize all their lower level stuff, that they can devote their cognition to strategies and working out what the opponent's going to do next. In other words, we're worrying so much as amateurs about our backhand that we can't possibly think about what our opponent's doing. So, you, you know, you actually shunt your cognitive, your precious, you know, cognitive resources to higher level problems because everything else has been automatized. The problem, I think, in science and in neuroscience in particular, is that's reversed. What happens is scientists prematurely automatize the important ideas and devote all their thinking to lower level, level methodological problems. So they stop thinking hmm. about the bigger, what's a representation? What's inference? You know, what can reinforcement learning tell us or not tell us? So in a bizarre inversion, they prematurely shut down thinking about the big complex parts so that they can devote all their cognitive load to modeling, to doing analysis, to looking at data. Do you think that that's but, because the, there is such a load cognitively to, the, yeah. to everything that, everyone, that everyone's doing? So... You have to choose, right? Right. So in, like, so in other words, a, a scientist, and I have been thinking about this only recently, like inverse athletes, is that you, it, the nature of the discipline and the complexity of its methods basically make it very difficult to devote that amount of practice to the actual higher level concepts, which are 
saturating, especially cognitive neuroscience. And so philosophers sometimes can actually have a, a unload that burden a little bit and sort of do some of that thinking that can complement the amount of cognitive load devoted to the techniques, to the math, to the that stuff. And that's what I think is happening. And the point I would make is that's not going to work, right? In other words, you're mm. going to have to devote some time to worrying about the higher level problems associated with the assumptions you make before you dive down into the methodology. John, it, I, I'm not sure what you're describing is so unusual across the sciences, right? So there's this Kuhnian notion of normal science or typical science or something like this. And I think you might find this kind of division of labor, maybe, or this division of attention uh, within scientists where oftentimes there is a lot of normal science that occurs and a lot of progress is being made. We shouldn't minimize the work that's being done, despite sort of shelving bigger conceptual problems. Uh, and maybe cognitive neuroscience in that sense isn't so unique. Maybe it really is a feature of all the sciences to have this kind of focus on the local issues, on the techniques and the methods and the math um, with only the occasional uh, engagement with these bigger issues. Now, of course, Kuhn famously said that when you have occasion to deal with these bigger issues, that's when you sort of get revolution. That's when you get paradigm shifts. That's when you have a real change in the disciplinary matrix in the way that the discipline proceeds. Um, and maybe what we're saying is that it's time for that in cognitive neuroscience. Um, but I, I, I'm not so sure it's really distinct from other uh, uh, scientific disciplines in that regard. I would just, I would just say, you know, on that, that's true. Um, it's just in cognitive neuroscience. I mean, you know, I've made this point to, before. We do not have the Oxford handbook of the philosophy of the liver or the kidney, right? In other words, cognition and the brain seem to lend themselves to the need to think more than I think it is necessarily the case when you're working out how the kidney concentrates urine. In other words, I, I, and so in other words, yes, that's true. And Kuhnian framework can be applied, I'm assuming, just as much to liver science as brain science. And yet there's this extra thing, which I think is real, which is this mind matter issue, this cognition, you know, the whole framework we've got. So in other words, and the final point I'd like to make about this is I think that scientists, you know, my brother talks about this at SFI, you know, that scientists are actually quite rare in the science domain. You've got a lot of ancillary professions, you know, statisticians, programmers, engineers, a lot of professions that accrete around this whole domain. But actual scientists, people who are worrying in this more fuzzy, global, less local way, is increasingly rare. Right. And I think I've spoken to you about, before. you know, when you read Oliver Sacks's little essay on Darwin coming back from his travels and worrying about the sex of plants, it just exudes a kind of scientific curiosity and creativity that we simply do not promote in current science. And I think that philosophy in a way can be a counterbalance to that tendency if used properly. Well, I, one of the motivations for my question is that I, I think, like a lot of people, you know, become 
became disillusioned with the specialties that I was learning. And, and of course, you have to do a very deep dive and learn a very specific skill set to become an expert at anything. But this is uh, antithetical to the overall drive to be a renaissance person. We'll say person these days, renaissance person, uh, which is what maybe maps onto what you're calling a scientist, John. And and so that's what I'm wondering. I mean, I, I, my question was about neuroscience and philosophy specifically, but of course, then you have to have circle back around and learn more mathematics and you have to circle back around and learn all sorts of different topics. And what is the right path to maximize the probability of becoming the Renaissance person that you want to be, right? To, to be most efficient. Can I that. give one more analogy to that, Paul? Um, when I'm teaching medical students or residents on the wards, for example, and you see a patient, I tell them that you should peg your reading to what you just saw. So you just saw a patient with hemiparesis, now is the time to read about motor cortex. If you have a patient with a headache, now is the time to read about headaches. So just, in, kind of, just in time learning is another. Well, yes, in other words, create your memory palace around a particular instantiation, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you develop, let's say for the, the, in the broader sense, that's an intellectual stance, that you sort of read around an event, you, 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 you worry. The word I use is learn to worry about what you're seeing and what you're thinking and what you're assuming. And take that worry to question what has been said about hemiparesis and headaches. Are there strange you know, characteristics of this patient that don't fit into the existing framework? And so if you want to be optimal with respect to reading, yes, you can read some seminal texts like Kuhn's book, for example, obviously. But really what you should do is just get into the habit of reading around in the philosophical literature and others when you come across your particular worries as you travel as a scientist along your particular trajectory. And I think that's what is lacking is that intellectual stance to read around your subject as you go. See, so now one of the most joyous things about my, my uh, retired condition is that I can do that. I can afford to do that. David, you're more freshly like me. You're kind of more freshly out of. So John's, I think, in his late 70s, early. I don't know. I, don't, I can't remember. That's it's, accurate. Yes. yes. He's ancient, <laughs> I think, is the. Yeah. Anyway, he's, he's a little more removed from, like, let's say, graduate school, right? Uh, than, than you and I are. Is that even possible at the graduate level, for instance, do you think? I mean, and maybe I'm asking the wrong person because you seem to have superhuman strength to to be involved in both philosophy and in neuroscience in very productive ways. And I don't know, how possible is that? Yeah, I think it is very challenging as a general statement, and it does require a certain kind of commitment, and it is a sacrifice. Um, you, We all have finite amounts of time. We have to allocate that time according to our interests. When one does true interdisciplinary work, you need to have the expert foundations in each discipline and allowing, uh, you have to allocate time to build the, that expertise base. And so it does take a time commitment and that time commitment takes away from doing things that are kind of essential to the business of academia, like publishing and, 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 and the like. It also, by the way, incurs a, per, a personal cost. So I took, you know, time that I devoted to my intellectual pursuits in multiple disciplines that I could have spent, for example, uh, devoting to social concerns. And so 
Um, so there is a cost to doing this kind, this kind of disciplinary, interdisciplinary uh, expertise building. This kind of comes back to what, what John was talking about also with um, tending to prematurely automate uh, our comfort level with some concepts and notions, right? But this is what I want. One of the most beneficial things that you can do is come to the place where it is automated, where you don't, where it doesn't, with some concept, like let's say inference you're reading and you read the word inference, where that concept does not provide friction and slow you down and ha- make you have to think, right? Bring in your system uh, to t- type two type thinking process, your executive uh, functioning processes. You want to be able to have that automated so that then you can use that and it just brings into the fore and continues in the stream of your thought. I don't know if I had a question um, for that, but maybe just asking you, John, if you think, you know, b- because that is kind of the goal of being a Renaissance person, right? And you, but you see this as antithetical to what's actually happening uh, in science. I guess that's a question. Yeah. I mean, I think one has to distinguish a little bit between, you know, Renaissance person uh, really means um, a number of sort of interlocking things. One is sort of this polymathic implication, right? That yeah, the last right. person to know everything, right? right? Um, the other one is to, re- to realize that there is a great benefit to being interested in the humanities if you're a scientist and vice versa. Right. And the third is just a particular, as I said before, intellectual critical stance that you take with respect mm. to everything that you do. And they're not unrelated in so much that you're more likely, in my view, to take a critical stance if you happen to be curious in an, across a number of domains. Right. So um, I'm always struck, you know, by reading in the Times Literary Supplement a very cogent, quite short book review that seems to be far more analytical, critical than most scientific papers that I read, mm. right? They, they, this ability to praise, to be cogent, to, to construct an argument, you know, it's just not taught as well in science as it is in humanity, right? I mean, that's the irony of all this, is that critical thinking is taught better in the humanities than it is in science. Um, and, you know, that's a conversation we can have. So I think that if you want to have a curiosity, worrying, uh, doubting stance towards your science, uh, then the humanities help because in the methodologies, that's not present, right? There's a lot more certainty and closure in methodologies. You either know how to do this or you don't, okay? And that, and that expertise can fool you into thinking you can be an expert at science. I don't mind being called a stroke expert. I am a stroke expert. But if someone says to me, you're a neuroscience expert, that seems very odd to me. I don't feel like an expert at all, right? I feel like somebody who's just worrying and trying to, (laughs) you know, understand things. So it just seems to me that you wouldn't call a novelist an expert novelist. It does just be odd Hmm. to say something like that. So I, I think it's just a difference in the stance, right, which I think is the most useful notion of the Renaissance person. But I, I do want to add to that, the cultivation of the critical eye can occur even just through reading literature. So I make a point to read a lot for fun as well. I enjoy reading. And I have found that my creativity and my analysis and so forth are benefit greatly from these more creative 
kinds of works of art from reading completely agree i think i completely agree and there there is some work on this um is it reading novels um is a real way to do better science as odd as that sounds you know richard rorty in his best book i think talked about this from another perspective you know how to be an ethical thinker read novels right and he had a brilliant essay on nabokov where he talks about this so but i but i think it's more that than trying to just go through an enormous pile of must-read books out of context. That's almost impossible. Um, John, I w- I've, been, I've wanted to ask you this. I don't think I've ever asked you this. And for fear that it's going to take up too much time, it doesn't matter. I'm going to ask you anyway. And, and, and David, I'll ask you the same sort of question in a different way. John, I'm wondering what your medical training, how you think it has interacted or benefited you or given you an edge or a different cut um, that... Maybe you, I don't know if you see see something missing in other neuroscientists or whatever that you know that your medical training has helped you with. I mean, do you think that that it has helped you or even hindered you, uh, your medical training? It's actually a really interesting question. I actually was at a meeting at SFI about a year and a half ago where David, mm-hmm. my brother David, actually mentioned that, and I, and and I've thought about it a lot recently. I do think that, um, especially doing stroke neurology, where you see the effects of modularity in the extreme, right, has definitely given me an advantage. You know, I hear people talk about embodiment mm-hmm. and, you know, the inactivist mind and, and talking about there's no such thing as specialized areas of the brain and all this kind of nonsense quite frankly and i think that is extremely grounding to spend 25 years looking after neurology patients and i used to talk to this actually with oliver sacks who i knew and we would talk about this that people who had opinions about how the brain works or about cognition who never ever had any experience looking at what happens when cognition goes wrong or what happens when particular parts of the brain are affected and so I think it leads to a kind of denial of the fact that the brain is where the action is for the most part, especially when it comes to cognition um, and this notion of modularity. So I would say that I found it increasingly grounding. And when you read someone like Tim Chalice and the work that he's done beautifully talking about, you know, neuropsychology and what the lesion approach has taught us about the brain. And how neural recordings has not done, in my opinion, as good a job as lesions have so far, right? It's actually fascinating that lesions seem to do something heftier in terms of what you see than interpreting recordings from the healthy brain. And Chalice writes very beautifully about this, is can we substitute the lesion-based pathology approach with the healthy recording approach? And in my view, and actually he mentions this, it doesn't cut nature's joints so far as well. Yeah, but John, you and I, of course, in our paper, we make the argument that it depends on what you mean by sort of single neuron recording or, or brain recording. Oh, yes. I would. I, I mean, just to say that, to get onto the paper, I would say that it may well be that we're entering an era where neural recordings of some kind in healthy brains can begin to give the massive amount of insight that lesions provide. So to answer your question, because 
I've seen so many behavioral consequences of lesions consistently, by the way, it's not idiosyncratic, and done a lot of experiments in patients, whether it's cerebellar ataxia, Parkinson's disease, stroke. Yes, and I don't mean this in an immodest way, it gives me a huge advantage, actually. I, I really do believe that, and I've thought that more. And, you know, and David was one, he said to me, uh, completely, you know, in this meeting, he said, John, it's interesting that when people say things, you come up with a patient example which is incredibly undermining yeah. each time people make a certain statement. He says, you know, I'm, I have no axe to grind. I don't want to agree with you, but I find it really interesting that they'll say something quite ethereal and abstract. And then you'll talk about dissociations in patients and it's kind of devastating, right? It's, it's something you're going to have to deal with. It's concrete. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so you see it as a long-term investment more than a, a cost. <laughs> I absolutely do. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as David said, you know, could one have spent, you know, time coding or becoming better computationally? Yes. You know, it's, it is in the end a zero-sum game. But I think that if you want to be conceptually deep and worried, I think you have to look very carefully at what's in front of you. David, I, I don't want to, uh, if you have something to add uh, to that, you can. I was also just going to ask you if you think that your philosophical training has given you an edge and the nature of that edge, if so. Uh, yeah, I think it has um, in the sense that I'm able uh, much better to synthesize results. Uh, it's a very important aspect of philosophical work is bringing things together and comparing ideas and concepts and views. Um, so I think it has had very tangible benefit in that regard. And then I think to go back to something that John was talking about earlier, it's had a real impact in my willingness to just not believe what I'm reading uh, and to <laughs> yeah. uh, really question um, interpretations of data. So uh, as my neuroscientific training proceeded, uh, I went from reading the entirety of journal articles, sort of puzzling through everything to uh, focusing on intro and discussion to a much more mature position where I focus on methods and results and and being very skeptical of interpretive action and in, 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 in these papers, interpretive writing, uh, which oftentimes is in the introduction and the discussion. And so, mm -hmm. and, and that has come about, I think, because I'm much more willing to say, Ah, uh, they keep using this term used inference earlier. It is not easy to define what an inference is. Um, it's, it's one of those, uh, funny terms that get thrown around that can mean a, a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So that's a good example where that might occur in a paper, for example, on Bayesian coding and in, in the brain and visual cortex, let's say, and we'll talk about inference and I'll say, mm, I don't really buy this story mm. because this is a term. It's really a filler term that it, it can take on different meanings for different readers. And uh, I, I, I think I'm much more willing to, to, to call that out to, in my own reading, in my own annotations and what I'm reading, and to, uh, and to sort of deconstruct positions uh, and, and to try and dig down and say how much of what they're saying really turns on this funny notion here that's not well-defined. Um, and, and, and then what, are, and then the next step then is, okay, what are they actually doing? What did they actually find? And that's where you get this focus on methods and results. And then you can say, okay, here's the tangible uh, output from this study. Uh, here's their interpretation, but it has all these conceptual issues. 
Um, and of course, John and I are of the opinion that there has been a, a recent flowering of conceptual issues, uh, and it, it pays to pay attention to some of them. That is a great segue, uh, I believe, to to talk about the paper, and <laughs> um, which is a let's see how do I how do I introduce this paper? So I I would say that the um, the paper is a very high dimensional uh, foray into these concepts. So therefore, I'm going to give my lowest dimensional possible summary of it, um, which is you know completely unfair, and then we can go from there. But uh, I'll give so my lowest dimensional summary uh, of of the paper is that it is yay for dynamical systems theory approach, uh, and let's detach uh, function mental properties neurally from. Uh, structure uh, and and the low level circuitry of the neuroscience. I just went high dimensional there. Let me. I'm going to go. I'm going to stick with low dimensional. Yay for dynamical systems theory approach. How how is that too low dimensional? I think uh, that's not a a bad uh, catchphrase slogan, as it were. <laughs> um, I think there is uh, there are some fine issues here that we need to pay attention to. Um, you said in your initial more high dimensional, uh, recapitulation that it's, <laughs> it's against structure, but for dynamics. But I actually think that structure is one of these funny terms and there's sort of the structure of neurons or the structure of networks, but there's also yes. dynamical structure. There's state spaces. There's, uh, features of the way that, um, uh, systems move through those state spaces and that, and that deserves to be called structure. And actually there's big debates in philosophy about what exactly is structure, material structure, what does it mean? Um, and, and, and right. this bring, raises some issues about how, can you actually cash out this difference between the dynamics of things, um, and their material properties? And, and I could sort of fall on the side of not really. Um, anytime you measure anything, uh, you're registering a change, for example, or no change, which is a certain kind of change. Um, and that, um, Bertrand Russell made the point that we don't really know what the sort of intrinsic properties of matter are. We only know the properties of matter insofar as, uh, matter can impinge upon other, uh, matter or, or has other effects. Um, and as a result, it's not clear that there really is a substantial sense in which you can distinguish between uh, structure uh, and dynamics, and 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 so I think for for those two reasons, there's dynamical structure as well as the fact that what we typically think of as material properties really do reflect dynamics or changes or something of that nature. That the distinction uh, doesn't have uh, a good grounding. Yeah. See. See. That was very high dimensional what you just said, and I think that that's unavoidable, right? And um, so this paper, you know is because of the of its high dimensionality because it's of its synthesis and drawing on a lot of philosophy and drawing on really heavy concepts that are uh, unfinished business and you guys operationalize terms and define terms as you go but keeping those the, your particular definitions and conceptions in mind while you go it is uh, a slow going affair and there's what what's the what do the kids say it's it's a lot that's what the kids say these days right isn't that the phrase it's a lot. Yeah. Um, so, so just to like zoom, zoom way out, what would you say? And, you know, you can both chime in here. I'm, 
Uh, I should be a better host and ask one of you specifically, but it's a discussion. So what, what would you say is the, is the take-home claim uh, from, from the paper? Well, I'll just go quicker because I know David, you know, will have more to say and to fill in. I think there are a number of things. First of all, just to finish the conversation just had, I do think it's important to distinguish between sort of population doctrine ideas. In other words, you don't have to invoke dynamics per se to be able to derive interesting properties from populations, just like you can from neurons. And of course, there's dynamics in single neuron data. That's what the peristimulus time histogram is, right? So, you know, I think it's important to absolutely accept that there's a very important role for considering dynamics and trajectories in population level analyses, but not to conflate them. Okay. In other words, that's one thing. The, 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 the points are, if we're going to worry about thinking, cognition, and you have to say that there's something different between thinking and moving, and that there's something about the neuroscience of moving that isn't going to easily extrapolate to the neuroscience of thinking, and that one's going to have to, you know, from the outside in, well, what is thinking? You know, as David said, you know, what kind of representations does one have to invoke? One has to talk about intentionality. One has to talk about models of the world that are detachable from a stimulus. In other words, one has to think more about what sets cognition and thinking apart from the sensory motor system. And actually, to your point about me seeing stroke patients, I can tell you that I see uncoupling of those systems all the time. Uh, the, the best example is when The Diving Bell and the Butterfly was written by the editor of French L, Dominique Bobby, where he had a pontine hemorrhage and was locked in and wrote an entire book. Right? Now, he couldn't move at all. Right? But he could write an incredibly beautiful book. Okay? And all I'm saying is whatever we end up understanding about how he wrote that book, it's going to require some extra thinking from how he lost his ability to move, all right? So that's the first thing, is accept that there's, a, there's something about Kahneman system two versus Kahneman system one, which I will flagrantly say a lot of movement is system one, thinking is system two. So that, which we start with, and then go, okay, based on a bet that David and I had, what kind of neuroscience is going to give us the best insights, intuitions, concepts to think about that difference between the cognitive system and the sensory motor system? And the argument is that the Hopfieldian view, this idea of population level phenomena, right, which have dynamics, are going to be the best way in to this particular puzzle when it comes to cognition. So it was really that. And then to say that the Sherringtonian approach, which seemed to work very well, as Sherrington used it in the soleus muscle of the decerebrate cat to study the stretch reflex, isn't necessarily going to be as fruitful as a first level explainer when it comes to these cognitive attributes that we talk about. So it's really that. What is thinking? Does cognition deserve extra features? And then what kind of neuroscience is going to help us have a feedback loop between the behavioral data and the neural data? 
And that's what this paper is really about. So I think that it would be, so I'm, I'm going to diverge from John here. So I, I don't sure. think that the distinction that we're talking about is really driven by system one versus system two, whatever sure. its empirical yeah, merits yeah. may be, whatever its hypothetical status may be. I think that there's habitual cognition that requires sophisticated manipulation of representations in as full-blooded a sense as you want. So I think that would be system one cognition, full four cognition. I think there can be system two um, that is non-representational. Uh, and so I, I do think that the cognition, uh, that the uh, system one, system two uh, distinction is orthogonal to sort of what we were trying to pick up on. Um, and I think it is the existence of certain cognitive faculties and our ability to flexibly um, manipulate representations that is the driving question behind our study. And I think what our study, our, 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 our paper, and I think what we argue is that in order to address these sophisticated cognitive faculties, we really do need these new resources, these new concepts, these, this new way of thinking about brain data uh, to address. I would, I mean, just to be clear, I disagree with that view. In other words, I think that once you, what I do agree with is you can have a lot of system one cognition. That's what the whole book was about, right? In other words, you know, you cross the street as a white person when a person of color is walking towards you, that is a system one cognitive mistake, but it's no longer representational in my view. It's just a cached, non-representational policy that you now have, a racist policy. And I actually think that it's only useful to think about representations when you overtly, deliberatively consult them and use them rather than just now trigger them like any other. Yeah, but I think that cognition is a type of internal behavior. And I think the values that embody our aims and our goals during inquiry can augment and change the direction in which our cognition unfolds even to the deepest level, even to inference, even to the sequences of mental states that are purportedly logically connected as a result of one mental state seemingly supporting another. That is a completely value-based kind of internal sort of behavior that can be completely unconscious. So there's bias, not just in action, but in inference and thought pattern. And I see no other way but to suppose that that is representationally driven. So that's why I have that view. But John, I don't think you and I have ever debated system one versus system two. So this is interesting, you know. That, 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 that's absolutely true. I, I, I think that I, what, I, what I'm saying is that, I, and it is somewhat orthogonal, that I think that if to the degree that we are worrying about cognition, I think we're worrying about something where you're overtly, you know, you're, it's intentional, you're consulting a model of the world. Uh, I do think that you can have intelligent reflexes all the way up into cognition. And it's interesting to me that whether you know, a reflex way of striking your backhand or a reflex way of thinking about something, I'm not so sure that they're that different. But where I do think they're different is when you start getting into this overt, intentional use of a representation. But it may not matter hugely to this debate, but my, my guess is that there's, there is a difference between a cognitive reflex and an overt deliberative process. This is an interesting distinction. I mean, I don't know if you want to go down the backhand essentially example to talk about this, but you know, it makes me think of um, going back to our automating, right? Automating uh, prem- when we were talking about um, learning science and prematurely automating concepts, uh, and the difference when you're doing a backhand in flow state versus doing a backhand 
uh, when you are intentionally thinking about it and it screws up your backhand, right? So is this an area where, and I may be getting way too far ahead of uh, ourselves here, is this an area where representational thinking, what you guys would posit as representational thinking, crosses over uh, and affects the uh, cognitive reflex type thinking? Does that make sense? Does that question make sense, first of all? So I think representation could, I mean, maybe this is more of the the disagreement between John and I, but I think representation can play a role even in um, this sophisticated backhand uh, as opposed to when you're learning how to do a backhand. Um, let's, for the listeners, let's just define representation the way that you guys defined it in the paper here, okay? What do you mean when you say representation? Right, so representation is an internal state of the system that has content. It's about something that helps to guide uh, behavior, carries information about that uh, something in the world, but has more sophisticated properties than just those two, carrying information and guiding behavior. In addition, for example, representations oftentimes can be uh, can occur in the system even in the absence of things that typically cause them. Uh, that's this detachability property that we mentioned earlier. And there's other properties that they have as well. For example, oftentimes in philosophy, representations are thought to be able to be true or false or valuable in some sense, accurate or inaccurate. And uh, so that's another more sophisticated property of representation than the term uh, that, or the concept is typically thought to imply, especially as it's used in, in much of sensory motor neuroscience. So when we talk about representation, we're not just talking about any internal state of the system that helps mediate behavior and can carry information about the external world. In addition, we're talking about these more sophisticated internal states that can be manipulated inside the system that are about things in the external world that can be evaluated for truth or falsehood or other types of, of properties. They can be accurate or inaccurate, and that can occur in the absence of their typical stimulus, typically. So, so this is a more sophisticated sense. It's much more philosophical of a notion of representation than uh, typically occurs in discussions in neuroscience, but we think is necessary in order to tackle these really sophisticated cognitive phenomena. For instance, uh, an example I like to use has to do with planning a vacation. And planning a vacation oftentimes requires, for example, making uh, a, a purchasing a plane ticket. And you have a representation of a plane in your mind when you're planning this vac- vacation, but there's no plane in your environment right now that's causing that representation. So there's some internal process that causes that representation, even though you're not in the presence of planes. And, and of course, there's a million examples of this type that we can use. You can think about things that don't exist and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of sophisticated cognitive activity that goes on that requires this kind of internal action, computation over internal structures in order to explain. By the way, this more sophisticated notion of representation that we talk about in the paper has caused no end of controversy uh, when we presented this material and, and, and lots of furious debate. I mean, it's actually a very good example, and this is very important here, um, of where um, the philosophers and neuroscientists confuse each other. Yeah, I okay. can see that. Um, it's actually very interesting that, I mean, let me just give another example that I can think help. If you um, walk into your front door and you walk to your kitchen, okay, you just do it. But if I asked you, Paul, right now, tell me how many left turns you take when you walk in the front door of your house to get to your kitchen right now, you're going to have to use a representation, right? You're going to have to think about the out 
your house. You're going to have to imagine yourself walking through it. And you're going to have to answer. You're going to have to do a computation on that representation, which is count the number of left turns. Actually, have to simulate but, it. Yeah, yeah, you're going to have to simulate it. Whereas that's not the case when you walk into your house and go to the kitchen. You've cached what you do. You use cues. You don't have to use a representation like that. That is a vast difference. Okay, and that is what this is about. Now, it's very interesting that philosophers who have tried to naturalize their views of representation and stick to the neuroscience, what they do in most cases, and there are exceptions, is they strip the interesting aspect of representation, this simulation, down to impoverished, anemic versions of representation, which is a state that maps isomorphically onto some aspect of the environment. Okay, Neuroscientists also have that impoverished view. Right. It's just some correlation ultimately. Right. So it's very important to realize, interestingly, that in an attempt to get into the neural data, the interesting aspect of representation, which is this full blown simulation that you effortlessly can do, which we haven't the slightest idea how that happens, by the way. No clue. Right. But we want to have a clue. And again, what this paper is about is perhaps that ability for you to simulate in your head the number that your house and then do a computation of that representation, the number of left turns, right? That's what we want to understand. And the, 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 and the bet we're making is that you're going to have to have a Hopfieldian population level notion of it. But let's just understand the, the normity of the problem and that we don't have a clue. Okay. And that's what we have to admit. And is it fair to say that the modern dynamical manifold type computational approach is, you would argue, is our best bet toward uh, a brain-based explanation of how those higher level representations occur? Uh, yes, but just to be clear, right? I mean, a lot of the nice work that's been done on population level calculations and dynamical systems have been done in motor cortex. Right. right by Mark Churchill and Sean, where in fact they're correct to eschew the notion of representation. In other words, they're correct to say that you don't need to invoke the notion of representation in that particular incarnation of a dynamical systems view and a population level view. That's an extremely important point to make is not every population level analysis and trajectories and manifolds and subspaces implies representation of the kind that we think you're going to have to invoke for thinking. It just may well be that some version of that in the prefrontal cortex will do the requisite job. But one has to, this is just a stepping stone. It's not as though that this level of analysis, this Hopfieldian view, is inherently representation in the way that we want. Far from it. It's just that it's the, we just have a feeling that that's going to be the form of the neural data which will get us there. It's a bet. In, We're making an empirical bet that this way of viewing neural activity is going to be the way that explains representations, it explains the manipulation of representations that gives rise to intelligent behavior. An interesting aspect of this is that this, is, this has been going on for, you know, well, uh, it's increased in publications, for instance, right? Uh, this mode of analysis. but. Um, it's sort of the it has the the high dimensional the 
high number of neural popu- neurons population recordings has naturally lent itself to this type of analysis that has now been going on for over a decade. And I'm wondering what, so, so now, <laughs> I mean, so you're satisfied that this is the type of, of uh, technology and recordings that will all of a sudden, now that we have this modern technology that lends itself to these kinds of analyses, uh, now it's a more satisfying account of, uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, articulating it well. It seems convenient, let's say, to, to say, now we have, this is the best modern data and analysis that we have, and it's better, <laughs> right? And, and so that, that's why, you know, my initial uh, summary of yay for the dynamical systems theory approach is, it's kind of like saying, yay, we're doing well, we're progressing. And I and I'm wondering what the where the big step is. Just one thing, just one thing. I mean, it's just so important. I mean, a lot of people in the dynamical systems view were anti-representational. Okay, so I I think it's dangerous in this discussion to, you know, and so were the original papers by Mark and Krishna, right? They explicitly say in their papers that this is non-representational. So it's extremely right. important to not confuse sort of the way to map the neural data onto these behavioral concepts and and to and and just to, to call it dynamics I, I i'm just worried because it, it it it's it's just there is a component of dynamics when you basically have transitions between states but it's not an anti-representational stance that we're taking it, on right. the contrary right so it's the just history of, of dynamical systems is from the beginnings you know from um, Van Gelder was was anti representational yeah. essentially, yes. and that Rodney is just etc. And let me just be very clear. So I, I laid it to me. If you want to do cognition, and you don't have a representational start, it's a non-starter in my view. Yeah, it's just a non-starter. I think David agrees. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean, and I just think a lot of people are beginning to think that when it comes to cognition and the kind of representations that cognition implies, that doing interesting work with the ability to record from many neurons and the ability to do new forms of analysis on that is an interesting segue and a way in to trying to understand this form of representation. Um, it's, but it's, as David said, it's a bet. But I think many other people are saying this. It's not just us. I think people are beginning to think that this is the way to intuit how these representations are computed over by having some neural data to look at. It's, a, it, it's just a bet that it's going to give us insight. But I'll add that, it, you know, it, it's the case that, if I might be a little philosophy of science, put my philosopher's cap on that, the single neuron <laughs> approach to understanding cognition was really spinning its wheels for the past decade and a half or more. Uh, there was marginal, seemingly marginal progress on certain issues, but not on these core complicated aspects of cognition. Furthermore, the single neuron data that was being collected presented this bewildering array of responses that didn't meet an easy story along the lines of previous sorts of single neuron stories, what we call the Sherringtonian view in the paper. So what you have is not just this fortuitous development of new techniques and for recording many neurons, new methods to analyze these uh, uh, many neuron recordings, but you have in the traditional complement of techniques uh, something like a crisis state where you're not making the kind of progress you would hope despite the huge sums of money and, and large data sets that were being collected. 
And I'll also add that this new kind of approach, this new way of thinking about the brain, of analyzing many neuron, uh, many single neuron recordings where you have many neurons collected at the same time to get some a better snapshot of the population has been productive, especially in the past five or 10 years, not just for representation questions that have to do with representation and cognition, as John pointed out, even in, in motor cortex has been tremendously fruitful. So you have, on the one hand, a relatively stagnant research program that uses these older techniques and has a commitment to a Sherringtonian style explanation where you're detailing individual neurons and the connections between them and what each individual neuron is doing. I've heard it described as as sort of like this um, anecdotal neuroscience where each neuron has a little tale to tell about what it does um, to uh, one where you have many neurons are being recorded uh, that have produced uh, novel insight into a range of, of, of cognitive as well as non-cognitive neural functions. So I think, and, and that's productive. So Unlike this adherence to this more old-fashioned view, there has been a, a productive research program. Uh, and, and, and that, to me, says not just that this is the new thing in town, but this is sort of what the doctor ordered, that, that we really did need these kinds of techniques and methods in order to make progress. And that's very exciting. I mean, this is, this is actually really good news. And I'll add, as sort of by way of coda here, that it is not just confirming these models that we have from other disciplines either. It's really providing novel insight into how the brain is able to give rise to the intelligent behavior that's truly representational and cognitive. Can you give a, a concrete example of that of a novel insight? Yeah. So um, uh, a lot of the recent research and publications that are coming out that have to do with this kind of new Hopfieldian view where you're looking at neural populations and you're looking at how the system traverses through that state space, um, have uh, provided insight into more complex representations in the brain. A lot, and, and one of the main explanatory concepts is this notion of a manifold. So that it's not like when you look at these population activity uh, and you have thousands of neurons, let's say they're being recorded, that the system occupies any point in this huge space of possibilities. Instead, the system tends to occupy points that are on what's called a manifold, a, a, a sort of a, a restricted subset, a very restricted subset of the possible positions in that space. And it's those subsets or manifolds that uh, carry, seem to carry these kinds of representational contents. And, and there's there's nothing about any theories in psychology or, or, or cognitive science that say you have to use manifolds or anything like this, but the brain does use manifolds. So I like to think of, I like to conceptualize this kind of insight as a novel contribution. I'll add in addition that there are ways of reading out where the system lies in these restricted subspaces on these manifolds that is also providing a no novel insight into uh, cognition. So I, I, I love this one paper. It's a beautiful paper um, from the Jazieri lab at MIT. Uh, it's uh, from Sohn et al. In, in the journal Neuron from 2019, where they were investigating how the brain is able to keep track of and recreate in intervals of time. So the animals have to wait through an interval of time. And then when they're signaled to recreate it, they kind of have to uh, forego moving, they have to inhibit their movements until they think an equal amount of time has elapsed, at which time they respond. 
And uh, in addition to these kinds of manifolds that I was describing as representing the interval of time, the readout of where the system is on that curve, sort of low dimensional structure, that manifold, uh, actually seems to inform how the system recreates that interval. And it does it by determining how fast the system traverses mm -hmm. through another state space in the subsequent epoch where the animal in the subsequent period of time where the animal has to indicate how long they thought uh, the interval of time was. And that they call this neural speed. Right. So label. And but there's again, there's no theories in psychology about time estimation or response times that appeal to neural speed or speed of neural trajectories. So there you have an internal variable that seems to explain this relatively sophisticated, maybe not fully representational in the sense that John and I have been using, but more sophisticated than, than, uh, um, than other types of tasks, cognitive function uh, that doesn't uh, appeal that really does give us novel insight into what the brain is doing. So that that's sort of the example I like to use. And and we think that's the right step. This is the way that we're going to need to uh, explain more sophisticated, more complicated cognitive functions. And and, and also a number of things. You know, um, here I am at the Santa Fe Institute. I mean, you know, physicists have no problem whatsoever with the notion of emergence. Neuroscientists stupidly in my view always assume that emergence means this spooky version which no serious physicist believes in so in other words this is just a need for education on the part of neuroscientists um the point is that we've known there's a physicist actually here um at the Santa Fe institute says you know the, the the 20th century biggest achievement was to realize that the physics of individual objects and the physics of interaction between objects are different disciplines they are Okay, and they they require very different frameworks to understand. And if you think, therefore, that you get emergent properties from the interaction between neurons that are connected, and that that, and it's very interesting what David said when he said use that representation. Yeah. In other words, it's very important that the nervous system from the inside is using that simplified subspace to do work. It's not just us epistemologically as scientists from the outside, just simplifying things for our sake. And this is not a new concept. Computer scientists have known this for a long time, that in a, in a hierarchical system, you omit details so that you can do control with a simpler object. Right. Not the computer scientist emits Not the computer the scientist. Computer. The computer does that. Right. Okay, so in other words, once you take this notion of emergence and interactions, which generate objects, which are the control objects for a hierarchical system, and the physicists have known this and the computer science have known this for ages, it's not that new a concept. Mm -hmm. Murdad, actually, you know, I agree completely with, with uh, David, and I think it convinced me that there was a clue and intuition that could be given by looking at these intervals in this state space. Um, Murdad himself in one of his articles talks about the fact that if you want to understand how a clock works and you want to actually design a clock so it works for itself, you need to have things like cogs and springs, these emergently shaped objects that you construct a clock with. You don't talk about the atoms that make up the springs or the cogs. That would be a very strange way 
to design a clock. So he, Murdad himself, makes that point that these are not just epistemological objects to explain how a clock works to your friend. This is the type of object that you need to construct a clock so that it works. And all we're saying is that aggregate emergent properties lead to ontological objects which the system uses from the inside. And that is not something that is news to people outside of neuroscience. So the so the low dimensional t- manifold type objects, the neurodynamical objects that you're talking about. Um, another word I don't think that you've used this word yet in talking about it is constraint. Do you, do you cons- which is important in hierarchical systems as well. Um, what I want to ask about is the independence of these higher level representation dynamical objects versus lower level single circuit circuit more closely associated with reflexes and motor actions and where that line is. And the reason why I brought up constraint is I'm wondering if you see the lower dimensional manifold type structures as a constraint with which to do computation within the rest of the population of neurons, et cetera. I'll start with the constraint uh, part of that question because I think that's absolutely Correct. I think what's going on here is that these low dimensional manifolds do constrain how the population evolves over time and, and subsequent computations that are performed. They are in one part of state of their state space and they transform. They either move somewhere else in that state space or they get transformed into another state space. But it's, it's in a way that's, um, best explained by the constraints that are imposed by residing in these low dimensional structures in the high dimensional space. Uh, so I think that that's entirely an accurate description of, of how computation proceeds in, in the cognitive brain. Now, um, the first question had to do with the relationship between the independence of like, so if, where, is there a clean break between the higher level representation, you know, and how the, and then I'll just throw in how does the meaning get in there? How does the intention, yeah. the aboutness, right? As I say, the relation between the single units and let, let's say these population yeah. level structures or these are these um, more sophisticated uh, structures. Is that what you meant? I mean, I heard two questions there, there Paul. One was, yeah, are you asking about the relationship between single neurons and populations or were you asking about the the independence between cognitive representations and sensory motor the, ones? Which the one latter, are you really? The, the ah, independence yeah, between what I'm... So I'm avoiding the Sherringtonian and Hopfieldian labels. Uh, you may notice I, I don't don't find them useful, so I'm avoiding them uh, <laughs> because I, I find them to be more frictiony than anything else. Um, but but that's what I'm kind of wondering is like where the... where the You know, what is the nature of the independence between uh, these types of uh, computing, let's say? So I think it's going to depend partly on what you're trying to explain here. So if you are engaged in an understanding of the reflex, it's entirely um, okay to s- restrict consideration to these kinds of sensory motor yeah. nodes and connections sort of representations. I think there's great explanatory benefit. As you sort of get deeper and deeper, so to speak, into the cognitive as you are considering more sophisticated sorts of representations, then you're going to start needing to appeal to these more sophisticated neural structures. Do we do we know where that line is? I don't. I, so I have had this question posed to me before. I'm of the opinion. I'm not sure what John's opinion is, but I'm of the opinion that it's not clear there really is a line. I think there's going to be gradations of cognitive function that are going to sort of, there's a spectrum and some cognitive functions, imagination, narration, planning, they may, might require, actually planning, it seems like maybe doesn't require such sophisticated things. I think it depends on the type of planning, but, mm-hmm. um, 
but there are going to be these more sophisticated cognitive functions that are going to require these more sophisticated types of explanation in terms of neural spaces, of dynamical objects in the brain, uh, and there will be less sophisticated instances of cognition. But what you what you guys argue for a clean break, though, so that you can have these mental thoughts that are separated from your more motor sensory systems, they're, they're, that's why I'm asking about the independence, right? So what you just said is that there's a, a, a gradation, potentially. But what you argue for in the paper, I believe, is a clean break between them so that you can have these higher level mental properties. I may totally be misunderstanding, though. I, I, I just want to be, you know, there are many things being slightly conflated here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, I, 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 absolutely, I absolutely do think that there is, uh, you know, and I think, you know, this has come up a lot in, in linguistics. You know, I think Tom Scott Phillips has written beautifully about this, which is that there is a, a difference between language and communication, not a gradation, a difference, okay? Um, and a lot of people get confused. In other words, the gradation argument can get us into a lot of trouble. And that gradation argument comes from both evolution, you know, because you have to think that right. there's sort of modification in, on a continuum. And it also comes from the fact that in the end, it's all made out of the same stuff, right? In other words, prefrontal cortex and motor cortex are, are made up of very similar elements. And therefore, how could it be that there's this qualitative difference in what we think the representations are for cognition versus what they are for motor? And yet, in the end, whether you have an evolutionary argument or a stuff argument, there's a continuum. Again, no one in physics has any problem with this at all right? They talk about phase transitions, they understand qualitative differences. Um, yeah, but, uh, so, but my point wasn't about gradation in the, in the nature of representation, it was about gradation in the nature of the cognitive functions, and which properties your representations need to have are going to be conditioned on relative to the, the cognitive function that you're describing. But I do think there's a, you know, there's wonderful, you know, I, I, I use this in the book I wrote three years ago, about what Sherrington, interestingly enough, noticed in his chimpanzee that he gave a big sensory motor ablation to. And he beautifully describes in a paragraph in that paper from 1917, the huge uncoupling between the mm. cognition, the desires, the plans, the intentionality of the chimpanzee, and its con con consistent surprise that it had all these intentions and then its arm wouldn't move. Yeah. Right. And he actually points out that you've completely uncoupled this non-cognitive system from a cognitive system. And you see it all the time in patients, right? Apraxia patients cannot imitate or use tools properly, but their mistakes are perfectly executed. Yeah, so the in, right? they, they're independent. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that they can be completely independent. If that's, the, if that's the question, then there's no question that you can have ablation of sensory motor representations, but maintain your cognitive ones. Absolutely. Um, I'm, uh, I know that behaviorally they can be independent. What I'm wondering about is like within these neurodynamical objects, right, where, where the um, where is where does it be start becoming useful to talk about um, manifolds, right? Uh, to talk about lower dimensional um, representations as useful tools for thinking about higher mental properties. Because in the end, I mean, you, the vision is right that we can um, and and correct me, please, uh, because I'm sure I'm wrong. The, the vision, what I what I gather from the paper, the vision is to have little. Uh, uh, little shapes, little trophy shapes that we can put up on a shelf and point to and say, uh, that's worrying that Timmy's going to fall down the well. That's what that looks like, right? Uh, on a cloudy day or something. 
and and then you have like all these different shapes and I'm sorry, this is a very simplified uh, example, but I'm just trying to make it really concrete that then you can look and say, look, that's the way that that, that looks in manifold space. Yeah. So uh, I'll say that, you know, worrying that Timmy is going to fall down the well is going to look like, a lot like worrying that, you know, uh, yeah. Brenda is going to fall down the well. So you have this sort of swapping out for of representational content, but they're going to lie along these manifolds and you'll just be in a different position along the same manifold. But it's going to be dramatically different sort of neurofunctional space from hoping that, uh, you know, the it will rain tomorrow. Hoping so, that Donald falls down the well. Let's say Donald no, falls just down no, the you, well. No, you're going for a different orthogonal. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going for something. Sure. Uh, but it's <laughs> a different attitude. Hoping is going to involve uh, different computations sure. over those okay. representations. And so you'll have a different transformation. You're going to have different manifolds and so forth. Um, this idea of so when is it useful to talk about these Hopfieldian spaces. I think that just depends on what you're studying. So if you're studying, and, and, and let me be clear about this. When you're studying, hoping that, uh, it's going to rain tomorrow, you're not thinking about things that are happening in your immediate sensory motor environment. And so you are not going to get any explanatory purchase. Um, uh, if, if that's your, uh, explanatory goal, if that's the thing you're trying to explain is how I can hope for future events, it doesn't help to pay attention to what's going on right around you. Uh, your thoughts are directed at, they're about things that haven't occurred. They're not in your immediate environment. Um, so there's this, there's some sort of decoupling that needs to occur between the neural systems that support that kind of activity and, um, the, what the, the activity is about, what the contents of the activity are. And we maintain and argue that that is where the Hopfieldian view is really going to come uh, to be uh, useful. Um, and I think that the it's not just a theoretical claim, although we do make some theoretical arguments. I also maintain that there's good empirical support that it, it, the kinds of things that we're able to explain now and increasingly so, and the kinds of questions that cognitive neuroscientists are tackling, in the especially in the past five or ten years, are yielding to these methods more than they were to these other types of methods, to looking at um, sort of stimulus-bound input-output transformations by circuits in the brain. That's just not going to give you that kind of purchase. Now, where, which cognitive functions do you, you know, you know, if I'm just studying reflexes, okay, I'm sharing Tony, and if I'm studying imagination, okay, no question, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, in the, in the camp of the hot field. Where in the spectrum of cognitive functions does that transition occur? That, Depend. I mean, I'm not sure. I don't have a good answer. To, you know, I think some cognitive functions have placed more and more uh, uh, place more representational demands on on the system and place uh, more sophisticated representational demands on the system than others. And so, I'm just not sure there's going to be like a a clean cutoff between those. Oh, I, I would just. I would actually be a bit more extreme for the sake of. Um you know, we're seeing, whether it's work on hippocampus, whether it's work on temporal lobe, whether it's motor cortex, in other words, that's, you know, object recognition, which we don't call cognition, motor cortex, that it seems as though when you get into cortex, you're in a slightly different neural regime than you are in the brainstem or spinal cord. And it may well be that the aggregate behavior of lots and lots of interconnected cortical neurons exploited neural tissue in a qualitatively different way that yields to these kind of analyses that we're talking about. 
Okay. And so, and again, it's just a bet that if we're going to get to the kind of representations that we posit are important for cognition, just like we're getting real traction from motor cortex and hippocampus using population level approaches, that's going to be what yields the special source for cognition. It would be very odd to think that when you go from M1 to premotor cortex to prefrontal cortex, you suddenly become Sherringtonian again, right? It would be very strange. And if you look at um, Mark's recent work on SMA versus motor cortex, it's actually very interesting that he has to invoke representation for the SMA, where he subjects it to the same kind of analysis, because you actually have to re represent the order that you're going through in an action that is not important in motor cortex. So I would say that he's showing that this extra piece of representation, the order of the upcoming sequence, is present in SMA and is not present in M1. And, and, and so you've got a lovely juncture between a representational population analysis in M1 and a, a non-representational analysis in M1 and a representational level analysis and some trajectories that are very intuition building in SMA. So it's not that, you know, you take from 30,000 feet, it's just saying that once you get into cortex, it seems like this approach is yielding a lot of fruit that is not happening if you try and say neuron A is connected to neuron B is connected to neuron C and, and, and kind of intuit the computations and representations by following the sequential transmission of information through specific connections. It just doesn't work. Not only does it not work, it gives us insight into why we even have cortex. You know, why don't we just have these series of serial transformations? What, what, why do we need these complex prefrontal cortical zoo with all these, you know, bizarre a menagerie of neural responses. Um, and I think it's because the functions that, uh, that prefrontal cortex or cortex more generally serves are more sophisticated. They require this kind of substrate that can, um, support these neural functional objects, these Hopfelian type spaces and manifolds. So it gives us insight, not just into what these areas are doing, but even why these areas exist and because of the representational and, and functional demands that were placed on them. And I've, and I've mentioned before, you know, it's, you know, Joshua Bengio and others have actually written a paper, AI needs a prefrontal cortex. And Bengio talks all the time about system two missing from AI. It is right now. So in other words, it's, isn't it interesting that the AI people are now talking about the importance of the prefrontal cortex? They are also saying we don't, Benjo will say, we've got system one worked out. So in other words, there's this convergence of awareness that there's something extra that can be done in these structures in cortex. We're having a clue about how to analyze cortical data outside of prefrontal cortex. And now perhaps that same train of thought is going to re yield, just like Mark, I think, is beginning to show as he transitions from M1 to SMA. Then you have pre-SMA, which is considered honorary prefrontal cortex and then into prefrontal cortex. It just seems to me a good bet that this approach is going to give us intuitions. I, I can't see, honestly, and this could just be my limitation, how it's going to be otherwise. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Or maybe you would disagree. Well, well hang on, let me back up. We have like a, 10 minutes, so I want to make sure we talk a little bit more about AI, if you guys have more thoughts about how this approach could benefit or what what's missing in AI. And uh, and maybe maybe we should just focus on that, but just given the limitations of time, unless there's not a lot to say about it. Um, 
because, you know, John, you just mentioned that uh, people, and by people you meant Bengio, and there are others um, talking about System 2 and <laughs> consciousness prior. Sorry, I can't help but kind of laugh when the word consciousness is just thrown around in there. Um, <laughs> bringing, bringing this. So, so, you know, what, what prescription uh, can, do you, do you think this approach uh, can provide for AI that that might be missing right now? Is, right. is, is the Bengio approach it, or is there more to it? So, so I think that AI may need to move away from a focus on nodes and connections. And you're seeing this certainly in a lot of these analysis of deep neural networks more towards understanding their functionality in terms of state spaces and manifolds and these kinds of Hopfieldian objects and, 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 and a greater concern placed on uh, more complex and, and perhaps less discrete aspects of neural activity. Um, I mean, I would go so far as to say they may need to move away from, from um, thinking of nodes and weights as all that needs to be included insofar as these networks want to be biologically inspired. So as we say in the paper, we mm-hmm. speculate that it might turn out that there's that spikes and, and, and neural activation is really epiphenomenal and that there, you know, what's going on is we're just getting a readout of this, of this Hopfieldian neurofunctional type object and that it might be implemented not just by neural activity, but by all kinds of, of, uh, other types of electroactivity in the brain by large biomolecules and so forth. And, and maybe that's the kinds of signals that AI needs to start to incorporate. And I know that there is an active research program that's trying to do that. I will say this, which might be more surprising. You know, AI is really operating, I think, with sort of a fundamentally different material. Obviously, it's in silico. And it might be that given the nature of human manufactured computer processors that you're able to do a lot more than you can with sort of our evolutionarily constructed neural processors. Um, and and it might be that they're going to be able to do things. In other words, they're going to be able to have cognitive or cognitive-like behaviors even if they do restrict themselves to a more nodes and connections type view, just because the processes that they're working with are so fundamentally more powerful than the ones that biology has endowed us with. So, you know, you know, are, is this intelligence? Is this real cognition? It may not be. We might have to start to sort of brook other notions of intelligence, uh, besides the biologically inspired one in order to understand the way that these systems operate. But that's very speculative. You used the word decoupled earlier, and let's focus on that for a second, because, you know, vaguely in my head, right, I can see in a deep learning network, if you can somehow decouple the these higher uh, level representations from the underlying circuitry level uh, representations, that that, you know, I thought you might uh, be going there. Yeah, Yeah, no. Just to say something about that, I mean, I think what gets confusing here, and, you know, is, you know, there are so many ironies here right? Good old-fashioned AI was very much worried about these kind of issues, you know, symbols and common sense and reasoning, literally reasoning, right? right. right? And then it moved away and we had these deflationary projects. There was connectionism, right, which was anti-representational. Reinforcement learning, you could say some people, an update of Skinnerian behavioralism, right? So in other words, there was this very interesting move away from the original problems. And now it's coming full circle, right? And there's this sort of need, whether it's Bengio talking about prefrontal cortex, Paul, Sm- Paul Smolensky saying that we have to sort of combine GoFi and connectionism. And where it comes down to is connectionism as eliminationism versus connectionism as implementational, 
right? Now, obviously, at some point, second-level explainers are going to be about connections between neurons. No one's denying that. We certainly aren't. But what we're saying is that there's some emergent object that, are, that is a first-level explainer. And as we argue in the paper and others like William Ramsey have, that it's very difficult to get the representations you need for cognition inside individual nodes and connections. Yes, that's right. Right? And so there's going to have to be some mapping between implementational connectionism yeah. and the kind of dynamical, you know, neurofunctional object that actually can break free of those constraints and actually do work. And lots of people are worrying about this. Paul is particularly eloquent about this. But everyone is going to just have to admit that this is a problem and not just think that we can just deflate it by ever better attempts at the connectionist project. I mean, this is why our view is an empirical bet, right? We're not making a, a first principles kind of argument against a Sherringtonian network being able to do something cognitive. It's rather that it's very difficult to get the kinds of transformations uh, over representations that you need to explain cognition merely by appeal to nodes and networks, especially when you have noisy neurons in the brain. But you know, it, when we're, we've moved to in silico neurons and, you know, in silico connections and the kinds of precision and, and, and so forth, then, uh, it's a, for me, it's an open question about whether or not you can make that progress. I would still make the empirical bet, just as John did, that you need AI to shift as well, that it, it, it just doesn't make sense. It's hard to see how that kind of approach could yield success, but, um, so I would make that empirical bet for AI as well. What is the shift that needs to happen? Um, because you still have to build a network, so you have to you have to implement it in some architecture, right? Right. So I think one of the and actually I think there are some analyses of neural networks I can think of. Uh, Robert Yang's work, for example, that's really great uh, 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 that analyze neural networks from a, a, a dynamical systems perspe perspective, a state space perspective, seeing how different areas of the state space have different structures that can support different types of cognitive function. And I think that's the shift you're gonna to need to use. And what you're gonna see is that um, potentially uh, a shift away from, let me, I, you know, I don't work in AI, so I'm gonna be very speculative right now, but it could be a shift away from a consideration of, of error propagation through, back towards, you know, mm -hmm. The different nodes as a result of, say, performance on a task, it depends on what you're, what you're optimizing, what your error function is. Um, but you could imagine that instead of doing that, we're going to try and uh, propagate error on the basis of, I don't know, trying to replicate a certain kind of state space, let's say, or something like that. So that would be a, a, a real concrete difference where you, the, your, your error function that's going to define the error that you propagate back is going to differ. It's going to change from like a task optimization to, let's say, a dynamics optimization or something like that. That would be, but I don't work in this field. So for all I know, I'm, you know, yep. uh, that's happened. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they're worrying about this a, a lot, but, you know, you had Yuri Hassan on your program, right, Paul? Yep. Uh, um, where he talked about, you know, this direct fit approach. And, you know, he, he said, you know, you can do a lot of intelligent, as Daniel Dennett calls it, competence without comprehension. Mm -hmm. You know, you can show intelligent behavior by basically just training up these neural networks and you have such a big data sample that you can get by in life just by interpolation, right? The, but he admitted in his paper and on your show that when it comes to cognition, this flexibility, this extrapolation, he had no idea. He just admitted that this approach would not get you there, right? So 
In other words, we're just at the same aporia, whether we're in neuroscience or whether we're in AI. I think it's delicious that we're exactly at the same gap in both professions. We don't know how to get this rich representation either in silico or understand it in neuro. And, it, and, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's because we're up against the same problem, right? And we're going, and I don't know who's going to win the, the race. Is there going to be some sort of evolutionary algorithm at, at OpenAI or DeepMind where suddenly, oh my God, this thing is thinking, or there's going to be a more um, principled approach using the Hopfieldian approach where one begins to see what's required to get thinking. I don't know. One thing I can tell you, whether it's going to be the Hopfieldian approach in big cortical areas or AI, I think they have a much more, they have a much more likely to succeed than going down into an insect and being Sherringtonian and calling it cognition, finding some kind of circuit mm -hmm. motif that you can call microcognitive and then somehow imagine you can extrapolate from that. So of the three projects, I think we would argue that doing principled Hopfieldian neuroscience on primates, for example, or doing work in AI, worrying about system two, like Bengio is, is more likely to yield answers to cognition of the kind we are positing than being Sherringtonian in a very small model system. So guys, this uh, conversation has been very rich. It has not scratched the surface of the paper. So I apologize. We haven't gotten to so many other things. With that, guys, I, I really appreciate it. Um, sorry, I know I've taken you over, but uh, carry on the good work and, and we'll catch up again. I'm so grateful for being on. And yes, thanks for having us. And it's been it's been awesome. Yeah, it's been a very fun conversation. And thank you, Paul, for being, you know, so good, you know, you know in general with the two of us today and basically being almost like a psychotherapist to my skeptics. <laughs> very, very, very grateful. Okay. Right, thanks. All right. Take, Take care. care. Ciao. Ciao. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stare